Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come this morning into your presence to, to hear your word preached, we just thank you so much, God, that, that every week we come and we get to hear the word of God. Lord, let us not mistake this for the words of men. But Lord, let us give full attention. But Lord, you know that even as much as we might try, sometimes our, our minds and our, our hearts wander and we think about other things. And so I, I just pray for your spirit to be present with us today and to speak these words, Lord, to, to our hearts. Make them receptive to receive them, God, that we might... Uh, Understand your word, understand your promises, and rest and trust fully in you and what you have done for us. Oh God, we thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, yeah, have to appreciate the the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. He, uh, we've now about halfway through the book, and and he is examining. He has been examining all of life, looking for meaning in work. In, in wisdom, in uh, educational pursuits, and pleasure, and even as we saw last week, even in the worship of God, uh, he sort of leaves no stone unturned in, in one sense, and he finds that all of life under the sun is meaningless. It is futile, as we've seen. And, and it leaves us, as people, restless. Like I said, last week we, we looked inside the church, and at a faith that that simply sort of just goes through the motions and the preacher says but that's vanity but this week now he he leaves the church and he returns to life to where each of us live each and every day and and he speaks of the problem of stuff the problem of stuff now he deals with matters of of wealth and poverty and the bible says a lot about these categories of fortunately it says so much we're not going to have time to talk about most of it but the categories, I think, of wealth and poverty and of rich and poor are in some ways sort of difficult terms. I mean, I, I know that I entitled my sermon The Woes of Wealth, and I sort of wish I hadn't because I, I, I think that's not necessarily a, a helpful term to, to talk about wealth because the categories of wealth and poverty sort of beg the question of what category do you fit into? What category do I fit into? You know, are we rich? Or are we poor? And I think for many of us, that's a very difficult question to ask. And so as the Bible is talking about the wealthy or he's talking about the poor, you know, you're sort of thinking, okay, does this apply to me? Does this not apply to me? You know, I don't really necessarily feel particularly rich. I mean, you know, everybody knows who the rich people are, right? That's the two or three people in your life that you know that drive really nice cars and have really nice homes. And it's just very obvious that they are, are rich. And, and so you say, well, that's not me. But then you also look at your life and you say, but, but, but I'm also not poor. So I must be somewhere in between. But, I, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with these categories of, of rich and poor because the Bible does speak of those. But, but I love what Solomon does is he really, in one sense, sort of goes beyond these categories to deal with something even for more fundamental and that is what it is that you and I love. What it is that we love. It doesn't matter whether you consider yourself poor or rich. The real question is, what is the love of your heart? 
What's the love of your heart? What are you investing your time and your effort in each week as you face another Monday and as you complete it on Friday? What are you pursuing all week long? What is your heart yearning for and looking for to fulfill it? In the same way that you might take a part of your income and you might set it aside for savings or or even more so for investment. My question for us this morning is, what are you investing your life in? You spend all these hours every week doing something. What is it that you are investing in? And I want us to see here, as Solomon talks about, three kinds of investments this morning. Okay, and the first of which is a sad investment. A sad investment. Uh, and uh, what we see is, is he talks about something that cannot bring true satisfaction. And that is the love of money. He says in verse 10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. But but he's talking about this not only in chapter 5, verses 8 through 12, but also in chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. Let me read those verses again for you. He said, All the toil of man is for, for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and is striving after when. Uh, after, yeah, after when. You see, people who love stuff are ultimately not satisfied with stuff. I mean, and I think probably we know that, do we not? The more things we get, we think that it might make us happier, but then we find out oftentimes that's not the case. And part of the reason that that is so is because we, what we have is never enough. I, I love, I think it was uh, John Rockefeller, you know, who's incredibly wealthy. You know, someone once asked him, how much is enough? And his answer was this, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. And oftentimes, that's, that's where we live our lives. We just want just a little bit more. We don't have to be rich. We don't have to be wealthy. But we just need to get just a little something more to find that sense of satisfaction. And for, for some, even that fun and that satisfaction are not even actually in the things themselves. But it's, it's really in acquiring those things that our hearts desire. I, I, one person put it this way. They said, the fun is in the hunt. You know, it's in looking for that thing that we think is going to make us happy and then trying to, to acquire that. It's a, sort of like uh, the prophet Amos who said, you know, that we have said to, to God's people that we need to drink out of bigger and better cups and sleep on more expensive beds. And that's sort of the modern barometer of economic success. You know, it's a, the standard of living. But the standard of living for, for most of us is not a, a point a fixed point, but it's really more like a moving train, which for those of us who are on it, just keep moving forward, right? And I remember years ago, Larry Burkett would talk about that. I don't hear that so much in the financial world today. Maybe I'm just listening to the wrong people. But I remember him talking about how as Christians, it's very important that we have, a, that we set a standard of living for ourselves. Because, because otherwise, we will just continue to be moving 
upward and onward. And he said, we will never have enough. And so we have to speak to our hearts and say, heart, this is enough. And just sort of set that standard of living. And he said, sort of think about what it is where you want to be and then just add a little bit more. That's fine. And then just set it as a cap and say, that's all I need to live on. Then everything else the Lord gives me, I can give away to his work or to others that, that he may need it. And because he understood this whole idea that the things that we have are never enough. Whether we're rich or whether we're poor, we can feed our money-loving appetite all we want, but we will always want more. And then Solomon goes on in verse 11 and talking about this sad investment. And he observes that the person who has more stuff sort of attracts a circle of dependence. That's the best way I can think to, to put it. Uh, in the end, his only real advantage, as it says here in the text, is that he gets to see more goods with his eyes. But it doesn't, he doesn't necessarily get to enjoy all those things. Uh, in other words, if, if you think about uh, a man who has maybe a small piece of land, a modest home, and it provides for his family, and uh, he, he lives sort of a, a quiet, comfortable life. But the man who has a lot of land and acquires a lot of wealth needs workers to take care of it. So he, gets, he hires people to do landscaping and, and gardening to care for his property. Maybe he has a personal chef. He has to have accountants to, to manage his money and investors to, to invest that money. You know, so there are all those around him, as it, as it says in verse 11, that are there for his wealth. Sort of, some people would even say sort of leeches. You know, but even the government wants more if you have more. And uh, also, I think even in society, there are, are uh, institutions and communities that sort of hope those that are wealthy will invest in those communities. So even though you have much, there's always those that want that money that you have. So while he has more, he spends more and may in the end be less satisfied than the man who only has a little. As a matter of fact, look at verse 12. It says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And so, you know, the, the poor have good and, and they have bad. But one of the nice things about having less wealth is that oftentimes you can sleep more. And, and some people think, well, that's because, you know, I don't have to worry about my wealth and, you know, employees that I'm trying to take care of and profit and losses and lawsuits and don't have to worry about how to, to keep that secure from financial swings and, and stuff like that. So he could be referring to that. But there are also those uh, commentators that think that what Solomon is talking about here is really the fatty foods that a wealthy person eats, that because they eat well, they don't sleep well, you know, and, I, and it just sort of made me think, um, I, I wish I knew the figures on this. Maybe I should have called the YMCA or, or some other health institution. But I just thought, I wonder how much money we spend as Americans trying to be healthy, you know, at the Y or whatever gym you might go to. Or maybe you just walk down your road. I don't know. But we invest a, a fair amount of time and, and energy to try to sort of undo those things that we sort of have built into our, our lifestyle. But it is true. So wealth has its advantages, and, and the wisdom literature of the Bible is, is not adverse to, to hiding them. But it also talks here about the woes of wealth or about the disadvantage, uh, some of which are, are highlighted here. But the love of money can be especially harmful. It, it cannot satisfy the cravings of, 
the covetous heart of those that want more. The stronger the money addiction, the wider the hole in the human heart, you could say. So, so the love of money is really a sad investment, but even more than that, it's a bad investment. Okay, uh, Being driven by love for money is, is not only a sad investment, but a bad investment in life as well. Money and the stuff it buys not only doesn't satisfy, but it actually causes harm to the person that has it. And we see that sort of summarized in chapter 5, verses 13 through 17, and chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. But, but look at verse 13. He said, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And, and as you think about that, you think about those who, who hoard. Uh, hoarding can hurt the hoarder. In, in a number of ways, but let me just mention a couple. And 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 I want I want you to be careful when I use that word hoard. I, I was I'm a, I was a sort of reluctant to do so because I know there's TV shows that have to do with hoarding, and so you, you, your temptation might be to think of those extremes and think, well, that's not me, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about closets that are full, you know, uh, houses that you're you're sitting there thinking, man, I need to buy a shed. Because I got to get some of this stuff out of my garage so I can put it in my shed, or or I got to you know do that. It's just the, the 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 stuff that we have in our lives. So as you think about hoarding in that way, uh, how can it be harmful? Well, first of all, riches can be suddenly lost. In verse 13 and 14, it says, "There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son." but has nothing in his hand. You see, he's talking about a man here who has a family to support, but through some kind of bad event, uh, a bad venture, he loses everything, and so he doesn't even have the money to support his family. No matter how much uh, we as people do everything we can to try to protect that which we have, we could diversify our investments, we could buy bigger safes, we could put the money in the bank, we could do all these things and try to keep our wealth secure, we simply cannot safeguard it from every disaster. And, and I think about Job. You know, here's a man who is a godly man, and yet in one day, just like that, he lost everything. And not only his financial wealth, but even his family as well. You know, when the economy falters, some business people take it very difficult, or take it very hard, and Tim Keller, in a book he wrote, In Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters, he, he writes about uh, the, the economic crisis that started in 2008 and just how people responded to that. Now, I'm not going to give you the exact description that Tim Keller gives because it's rather graphic. And since we have kids, I'm not going to do that and give that graphic detail, but I'll to sort of let you know what he was saying. He said, the acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, many of you know Freddie Mac is the, the federal home loan mortgage corporation, he committed suicide in his basement after that happened. The, the chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, killed himself behind the wheel of his red jag uh, once he found out all the money that he lost. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families, he lost something like 1.4 billion, not million, but billion dollars of his clients' money in a Ponzi scheme. 
he inflicted wounds on himself that caused him to die in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive with uh, HSBC Bank killed himself in the wardrobe of his uh, suite in London that cost him like 500 pounds a night. To such powerful men, money was everything and it had power over them. And so when they lost everything, there was nothing for them that was worth living for. And, and so, as we see, even financial ruin still happens today. So it can be taken away. Um, the second way that hoarding hurts is, is that we, uh, it, it disappears after we die. I mean, look at verses 15 and 16. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall again go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? You see, just as we were born without anything, we, of course, will leave this world with nothing. I mean, we, you've heard the phrase, you can't take it with you. Uh, it's very true. In the grave, all of your investments will add up to what? Zero. Won't matter. Unless you have heavenly investments waiting on the other side for you. But on this earth, it'll be zero. Well, if we can't take it with us, then why do we work so hard to get it all? Why set our hearts on money and stuff if at the end of our life, it just goes away? It's not like working all our lives uh, to position ourselves. I mean, it's almost like we're, we're, we're taking our lives and we're positioning ourselves just to acquire dust. So we can't take it with us. Third, without God's gift to enjoy our abundance, everything that money can give us is joyless. It doesn't bring one ounce of joy. And if you look through Ecclesiastes 5 um, and 6, you'll notice that God is mentioned here a couple of times. And in chapter 6, verse 2, we read that God is the one who has given the particular rich man, mentioned here, wealth and possessions and honor. And yet, it says, he withholds the ability to enjoy it all. It also talks about darkness. It's repeated a number of times. And the second and third references illustrate the darkness of the grave. And specifically referring to a stillborn child. In verse 4 it says, For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. The physical darkness, that is death, of the stillborn child, it says, is better. Can you imagine that? It's, it's better to be a stillborn child than the spiritual and the mental darkness that plagues the living rich. Verse 17, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and in anger. Now, compare this with sort of the biblical concept of eating. I don't, I, you know, one thing that my Hebrew professor taught me in, in seminary was Jews like to celebrate. As a matter of fact, God wove celebration into part of who they were. And, and, and his rebuke to us is, as Christians, he goes, we don't celebrate. He goes, we don't rejoice in the goodness of the Lord. We don't uh, enjoy ourselves. Well, in biblical times, eating was a, was a social occasion. It was intended to bring great joy. But the picture here 
that Solomon gives is actually quite the opposite. It's, it's sort of an unhappy man that's sitting in the dark eating a meal all alone. The other picture, uh, as I said earlier, is even more shocking uh, because for an Israelite, the ultimate earthly blessing would have been to have wealth, a long life, and, and many children. Uh, that was a, a real blessing. And yet, in verse uh, chapter 6, verse 3, we read, If a man, uh, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. And then down verse 5. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. In other words, a stillborn child who never lived a day in his life is better off than the rich man who has lived two thousand-year lives and fathered hundreds of children. Why? Because the child has found, quote, rest while nothing can compensate for the rich man's lack of joy. The child rests in peace while the rich man is choked by what Jesus calls the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. So what's the point? That a long life without enjoyment is far worse than no life at all. And a hundred heirs with a thousand cares is a miscarriage of life. So, so Solomon talks about this sad investment that we can place in, in our lives in, and, and even a bad investment that could cause us harm. But, but he also talks about another kind of investment, praise God, and that is a wise investment. The wise investment is when um, the wise way to invest our lives is to seek to trust God by loving Him and enjoying His good gifts. Look at verses 18 and 20. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. In other words, we are to accept the lot in our life. You see, the covetous heart, the covetous heart is always looking for more. Just don't quite have enough. And yet here he's talking about a man who accepts the lot that the Lord has given him. That doesn't mean he doesn't work hard, you know, but it's a recognition that we are dust, destined creatures, as one person put it. So then we work hard and we find enjoyment in the work that we have. And we eat up and we drink down the simple everyday pleasures that, that money can buy. And, and we acknowledge at the same time, the absolute sovereignty of God in all things, understanding that not a drop of rain falls to the ground unless God so wills it. And in the same way, we do not have one ounce of joy in our hearts unless the Lord gives it to us. So God is the giver of all good things. He alone is the giver of glory. 
just as riches are sent from heaven, so too is the ability or the power to enjoy those gifts that the Lord has given to us. But you know, too often we're a lot like the Israelites, aren't we, in the wilderness? You know, even though God promised daily manna, Lord, give us this day our what? Our daily bread and forgive us our sins. Okay, he's promised us that daily bread. But yet, what's our temptation? We want to hoard. We want to keep, hang on to that which the Lord has given us. We hoard because I think deep down we don't believe that the giver will continue to give. And so we think that somehow we have to, per, we have to provide for ourselves just in case. But listen to this. The unsatisfied mater, uh, materialistic soul can be satisfied only by total dependence on our always sovereign and ever happy Lord. Where we'll true, find true satisfaction is when we let go of this. When we let go of supplying for ourselves and instead we turn our focus, we turn our energies upon the Lord. Which doesn't mean that you sit in your room 24-7 reading your Bible and praying. You work you enjoy the labor that the Lord has given you. Do you enjoy your labor? Do you enjoy what the Lord has given to you? I'm not saying every day is fun. I'm not saying there's not weeds in the garden, right? You know, we know because of fall there's weeds. But still there's a sense that God has given us what he has given us. And are we delighting and we are enjoying that every day? Do we understand that every day we come, we are to come to God with an open hand ad admitting um, to him that we sometimes have anxieties and even confessing the idolatries that we have sometimes. Asking him to make us more and more dependent upon him and his plan for provision for us. It's sort of molding and shaping our lives to where our focus is upon the Lord. And so we work hard, but we are to work hardest at sitting at the feet of our Lord. The one thing that is necessary for true joy of our souls is that we abide in Christ. That we sit at the feet of our maker and our master, understanding that he alone gives us all that we need in our lives. And as he says in verse 19, as well as the wealth of possessions and power to enjoy them. So I'm going to quote um, the great British philosopher Mick Jagger. That's a joke. Yeah. Okay. He says, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. You hear that? We may not always get what we want, but if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. And the Lord is always good to give us, maybe not what we want, but what we need. And what we need is for God to give us the ability to enjoy possessions without worshiping them, without hoarding them, without using them to try to somehow plug in that hole of our covetous heart. And if you do not have that joy, pray and ask God that he would give you that joy. For, for I think many people in our country, coveting it, uh, money is an idol or at least stuff, but God clearly speaks words of life to us that's sort of like a hammer that crushes the idol 
of our covetous heart. And there's nobody in this room that needs to hear this more than your preacher. And these are the wonderful words that he gives to us from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel. In other words, hear, O Kirk of the Plains. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Brothers and sisters, God seeks to destroy money as the God of our hearts and instead to erect in its place the understanding that money is a blessing from God. And it even could be sort of a way to direct our hearts towards God who is our highest treasure. So my question for us this morning is, where is your treasure? Did you know that that's where your heart is? It's right where your treasures are. Jesus told the parable of the pearl of great price in Matthew chapter 13. The parable is only two verses long. I'm going to read you the entire parable. Listen. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one great one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. You see, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he warned about the deceitfulness of riches and the futility of greed. And moreover, he admonished us to be rich instead towards God and to seek first his kingdom and to trust and to thank God for his provision. When it comes to money, we all face the same choice. Between acknowledging Jesus as king and submitting to his lordship or else remaining under our own perceived rule of our own lives. If, if we keep the puny crown on our heads, we find the investment to be both sad and bad, right? As we seek after stuff that can never satisfy us, as we seek after stuff that will actually bring us harm. But if Christ is our king, he will graciously remove that crown and cast it away and he will toss it into the sea and we will find that instead, seeking first the kingdom of God is the wisest investment of all. Trusting God by enjoying his good gifts that he brings to us. For as the wisest man who ever lived said, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Brothers and sisters, are you willing to give up that which doesn't satisfy and sell it all for that pearl of great price. To enjoy that relationship with Christ each and every day. To invest yourself in abiding with Him. And enjoying Him first. And then all these other things fall into place, do they not? Amen. Let's bow our heads and meditate upon the word that's preached this morning. Lord, I want to thank you for the word that you have given us this morning. And Lord, I, I thank you for the work that you give to us and, and the desire to, to cultivate that which you have entrusted to us in, in our lives and things and uh, good things. But Lord, we ask for your forgiveness when we set too much stock, when we actually, Lord, set our, our love upon these things. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would set us free. 
And God, especially if we are prone to work too much and not to rest and not be still before you and know that you are God, Lord, to cultivate that relationship with you, we ask for your forgiveness, but we also cry out to you, O God, for help. Lord, that we could just abide, that we could just know you, that we could listen to you in your word and, and pray. We pray for your spirit, Lord, to, to ever cultivate and, and to fan into flame, you know, like those little uh, billows that we blow on the fireplace in the wintertime to get that flame to shoot up higher. We pray that your spirit would so blow upon our dry, weary souls to kindle the flame and the coals, Lord, that burn warm for our love for you. Oh, Lord, we thank you that we could come to the table today to remind us that it's possible. Lord, right now, we may not feel that love, but we know that you have died not only just to pay for our sins in the past, but that we might walk in righteousness and obedience today. Not perfectly, but by your power and your strength, we can do so. And we're so thankful for that, Lord. And pray, God, that you would so work in our hearts uh, that we might enjoy the things that you have given to us without worshiping them. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen.